And then if you would, go ahead, grab your Bibles and find your way to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 3 through 12. We're going to work our way to that passage. We'll be there in a moment. But before we jump into uh, this next part of this series, uh, I just wanted to mention in preparation for next week, um, I've asked a good friend of mine, Caleb Kaltenbach, to come and speak. Uh, many of you know Caleb. Caleb is actually in transition uh, from being the pastor at Discovery Church, and now he and his family are in transition. He and I had breakfast a little while ago, and I said, well, hey, uh, since you're not like pastoring right now, you may have a Sunday open. And so I snagged him. And the reason is just two things, because Caleb's a good friend of mine. But secondly, many of you know Caleb wrote a book called Messy Grace. And, uh, and that book talks about his own journey and, and, and literally being uh, in a family where his parents were divorced when he was young and both of them came out gay. And because of that, his, his unique experience in understanding the same-sex attraction and navigating the, the lifestyle in, in, in conjunction with how do we bring scripture to bear on that in people's lives. And because I know so many people I've talked to either are trying to navigate that in their own personal life, but also trying to navigate how do I love one of my family members who's in that lifestyle in a way that I don't feel like I'm compromising, but I'm sure, still showing love and compassion. And Caleb has a great, very unique perspective. So I'm going to encourage you to be here. In fact, if you have someone who's navigating this in their life or maybe who's was working with a loved one, I encourage you to bring them because Caleb really, in fact, I recommended that book when we were going through our series on, on sexuality. So, uh, but that's next Sunday in both of our services. So this Sunday, we're, we're back into the series that we've been walking through called Undivided, Dealing with the Things that Keep Us from God. In other words, we're talking about idols. And quick recap, idols are usually, not always, but usually good things that become ultimate things and they take the place of God in our life. So this week, we're going to talk about the, the illusion or really the, the idol of pleasure. Because the ultimate kind of desire for pleasure in our life is that we go after this illusion called happiness. Happiness is the goal, and we think that pleasure is the delivery system to get us there. But this is, and all of us have experiences that, that we could share about where we, we had this idea in mind, if I get to this place or this experience or something in my life, I will be happy. And so we buy into this thing, this system of, of, of happiness called pleasure. And then when we arrive at the destination that we thought we were going to get to, it's not what we thought it was. Anybody ever want to admit that you've experienced that? Or maybe you experience a level of happiness, but then you go back to that well again and again and again. And before you know it, the well is dry and you don't know where to go because now you're supposed to be happy because this is what you were told and this is what you experienced and now you're not happy and you don't know what to do and so you find some else, plump, uh, other place to go and it creates addiction in our life that really is trying to look for something that only God can provide. Only God can bring true joy and happiness in our life and that's not cliche, that's reality and we'll talk about that this morning. So with this in mind, before we, we get into Matthew chapter 5, there's three things that are kind of major categories that I think summarize the places that we look to, the places of pleasure that we look to that we think are going to deliver happiness to us. And this is, tr I think, true for all of us. The first one is experiences. That we have these experiences in our life that we look to and think, if I am able to, to experience this in my life, then I know that it will make me happy. And so if you would just think about, in fact, this morning we're going to do a lot of self-reflection. Think about in your own life, what do you rearrange your schedule to do? What always finds time in your schedule? No matter what else is going on in your life, there's always something, an activity or an experience that you want to go to. And because of that, you are willing to cancel appointments. You're willing to rearrange life just to make sure that you're in that experience. See, in our culture, what happens is when we become addicted to experiences as the delivery system to happiness, then what happens is that very thing that's supposed to produce happiness actually produces slavery in our lives. That's why you can take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing and it becomes a bad thing. 
For example, sex. That's a perfect example. A good thing God gave in the context of marriage becomes a horrible thing in our culture. Why? When it becomes the ultimate goal, a delivery system of happiness that actually leads to destruction in our lives. Substances, we'll talk about that. That's the second, second kind of reality. Second thing is that we look at substances as a delivery system for happiness. So think about this in your own life. Substances, it could be, we could obviously, immediately we think of drugs, but it can be other things. But think about the very thing in your life, a substance in your life that causes you to lie to other people and lie to yourself. That's something that could have been a good thing, now it's become an ultimate thing, and now it's taken the place of God to the point where you're protective of it. It's become an idol in your life. And we can go down to the usual suspects, which is what, drugs and alcohol and all these kinds of things. But you know, probably the biggest uh, substance in our culture that causes the most difficulty for the most people, it's something really good, and it's something that we actually partake of every single day. It's called, yeah, coffee. Someone's just revealing their own addiction. (laughs) We'll pray for you. But it is, it's part of that, it's food. Food is the number one drug in our country, beyond everything else. And it's a good thing that we all need to live, but it becomes an ultimate thing that what? It is the delivery system of happiness until you wake up one day and you're no longer happy. And that thing called food either has caused you to become unhealthy in your weight or has caused you to be so dominated by it that you go to other means to eat, but then not to retain what you've eaten. And that becomes an addiction in our lives and it controls us and it doesn't lead to happiness then there's a third one this is probably a big one for all of us and that's people people become kind of that that means to an end to make us happy and so if i'm with the right person i'm in the right relationship i'm in the right friendship then i'm happy so ask this question of yourself if this person that you are thinking of who you love deeply or you think that you're supposed to be with if they were to die would you lose the will to live Because if you lose the will to live when they die, then they have taken the place of God because ultimately they are more important than God because you lose the very will to live that God has given you when they're no longer present. We can do that in all kinds of relationships. We can do that with parents. We can do that with friends. We can do that with spouses. And what's sad is when we do that, we place on that individual only what God can carry. And I've shared my journey. Kim and I had to apologize to each other a number of years ago because we had made each other idols. And I remember thinking to myself, if she dies, I might as well quit living. And God kind of got a hold of me and said, wait, wait a second. She's not your God. I am. And Kim came to the same realization. And then I had to apologize to her because I had placed on her, you are supposed to make me happy. You're the ultimate place of happiness in my life. You can't do that to a human being. That'll crush them. But when you realize that God is the one that brings true happiness, then you let humans be humans and no longer have to carry the weight of God in their life. So those are the three main things that that we end up kind of as the pathway to pleasure, the delivery system in our lives. But obviously, those things can lead to happiness, but for most of us, they don't. So we're left with, how do I find happiness? How do I experience pleasure in my life that leads to happiness? Now, this is what's crazy is so many times, not always, but when you read the scriptures, you see what we're living in our culture and what the Bible says are polar opposite. Last week, if you're here, we talked about success. And then we were in Philippians chapter two, which Jesus demonstrates what success looks like, which is the opposite of what the world tells us success looks like. Similar this Sunday. So in Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12, if you're taking DE one right now, this is session one. We call it the Beatitudes. It's a list of eight things that Jesus speaks about and talks about that basically uses this word blessed. And, you know, if you get old school, you're all blessed, which, by the way, the word best translated in our culture is happy. 
It is. Blessed is kind of a religious term. It gets really, in fact, you know you're around a Christian when they use the word blessed in a work setting, right? You're like, oh, I know who you are. Only Christians use that. Most non-Christians are like, what? What is that word all about, right? But the best word for us to understand, that's why when we read the, the Beatitudes, so many times we, we think blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means that you're actually happy. It means that you're, you're, there's joy inside of you, that there's actually pleasure that leads to happiness in your life. And so Jesus highlights eight things, and, and, and I apologize now because there's not t- enough time to drill really deep in each one of these. But this is Jesus lays out for us his posture to, to happiness in our life. And he sits down on a hillside and he tells a group of people, this is what happiness looks like. He's telling his disciples, this is what it looks like. It's going to look opposite of what you think it is, and that's why you have to listen closely. The first thing of Jesus' posture to happiness is that you and I have to own our poverty. Now again, this is complete opposite of what we would think. Okay, I need people, I need substances, I need experiences, and then I'll be happy. No, Jesus says, own your poverty. He says this in verse 3. He says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? You're happy when you're poor. Whoa, wait a second. No, no, no. Poverty means sadness. It means depression. It means being overwhelmed with life. No, Jesus says, when you're poor in spirit, and by the way, Luke's translation just says, when you're poor. He doesn't even say the word spirit. But when there's poverty in your life, there's happiness. How is that possible? I'll tell you why, because what Jesus is saying is when you can finally come to grips with, you, with the fact that you have nothing to offer to make yourself happy in life, then you'll discover happiness. But when you think you bring something to the table, especially when it comes to a relating, relating to God, that somehow God needs your help in order for your life to be happy, you will be miserable. Because you keep trying to be God. And when you and I are actually understanding that we are poor in spirit, which means we have nothing Then what does Jesus say? Then what? He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you realize you have nothing, you get everything. If you think you have something, you get nothing. Did you catch that? That's what Jesus is saying. So when you come to the table with Jesus, you have to realize you are in poverty, and you have to own that. And I think so many times we try to pretend like we're the Wizard of Oz. If you've Obviously, we've all seen the movie. And the Wizard of Oz is what? He was this old man, broken down, and he uses this machine and this system to make it look like he's this big, fiery personality to scare people. But when Toto pulls the curtain back, we all see who he is. We are all the Wizard of Oz, hiding behind the curtain, trying to pretend that we're something that we're not. And what God says is, if you will just come clean, you'll step out from behind the curtain and admit you are broken, you are poor, and you have nothing to bring to the table as far as your happiness. Then you will discover happiness. Why? Because then you realize the only place you're going to find it is in Jesus. The only place you're going to find it is following God in your life. But you have to own that. And there's, in fact, if there's those moments in your life which, where you come to that point where you realize you have nothing, you get to the end of yourself. I know for me, some of the most freeing moments in my life is when I come to the end of myself and realize I got nothing. You know the relief to admit you have nothing? Because then you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend that you have the answer. You just get to realize God has something bigger for you, and when you're finally empty, then God can fill you. So these don't get any easier. The second thing Jesus says, look at verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus basically saying you need to mourn your sin. Now we don't talk about this much. But what Jesus is saying mourn, he's not just that you could cover the blanket kind of statement of mourning, which is you lose a loved one and you mourn, but he's talking specifically about the brokenness that all of us have in our life. There comes a moment where you're heartbroken over your brokenness. It means you see your sin for what it is, and you actually see what it costs you, and it costs other people, and ultimately what it costs Jesus, and there's something in you that breaks. It's your pride. 
and you realize the depth of your sin. Now, it's not that you and I live in that and we wallow in the brokenness in, of our lives or in our sin, but what it does mean, it means that we have to come to a place, if we're going to experience the true freedom and the forgiveness that God brings, then you and I have to come to grips with how horrific our sin is. And what our sin has done to the world and what our sin has done to Jesus and what our sin has done to those who we love and all around us. And when we actually, it's like standing in front of a mirror and looking and just seeing the reflection back of our brokenness. Something happens in us that leads to future happiness when we admit how broken we are. We see it. It's the, it's the look on the face of parents that we foster their kids when especially we get infants in our house who've gone through horrific things in the womb and when they're born, they're born drug addicted or drug affected and they have all kinds of issues. They come into our house and that first meeting with mom or with mom and dad, when mom and dad get to see their child and the challenges they face for the first time and they ask this question, did I do that to them? Man, that's when it hits home. It's, it's home because they realize my behavior, my sin, my brokenness, what I did to this child, now they're living with this. And I've watched some of the parents, it changes their life because they realize their decisions affected that child and now they don't want to do that anymore. Now it doesn't work that way every time and I wish that it did, but that's what Jesus is talking about. You have to mourn the brokenness in you and come to grips with it. That's the only way you can find freedom from it. Otherwise you and I are living in denial that we somehow are okay Apart from Jesus, we're not. And then there's the third reality. And that is that Jesus' posture to happiness is that you and I have to learn to restrain ourselves. So this is, he says, blessed are the meek. Happy are the meek, for they shall, what, inherit the earth. So meek, what does that even mean? So we always hear that, you know, the kind of the cliche, meekness is not weakness, right? So meekness, usually we don't know what it is. We're like, uh, it's kind of not it's kind of weak but not weak it's kind of shy but not shy it's kind of someone who's really reserved but not really reserved what is meekness meekness is actually really almost the opposite of all of those one of the greatest leaders in israel's history is who moses he's the kind of the benchmark and moses was called by the scriptures what the meekest man on the face of the earth was moses weak no what did moses demonstrate in his life not always but for the most of the time, until there's a couple of moments in his life where he wasn't very meek. But what he demonstrated was, instead of taking matters into his own hands, he allowed God to achieve for him what he couldn't achieve for himself. See, the opposite of meekness is when you and I go along trying to make ourselves happy. When we take advantage of situations and we try to take kind of our rights and our abilities to try to make things happen, we force it. We like, oh yeah, that's being, that's being ambitious and that's ha showing initiative. That's different. What it is, is it's trying to create circumstance and control circumstances so that we can make ourselves happy. What does a meek person do? They know that they have strength within them, but they don't have to show it. They know that God is at work, and they realize, I don't have to help him. He can do it all on his own. And so meek people really come across as people who are extremely humble. Why? Because they realize who God is, they realize who they are, and they don't try to make it happen on their own. They're the kind of people, when you're around them, there's, a, there's this, this peace about their life because they're not striving for anything, but God seems to be giving them so many things in their life. But they're not grasping for it. They're not self-made. They're God-made. And if you think about that's what Jesus says. Listen, if you are meek, you will be happy. Why? It's the same kind of phrase as he said earlier. It's what they shall inherit the earth. Why? Because they didn't take the earth for themselves. They get it anyway. See, that's hard for us. Why? Because we, I don't, we don't say it, but we think God needs our help. 
We really do, to make it happen. So when something comes up, I got to take the reins. I got to be in control. No, and God says, why don't you just show trust in me, and I'll lead you where I want you to go. What if we live that way? You know, there would be a lot more peace. We'd be a lot more calm if we lived that way. But how many times do we take what God wants to give? It's like the mom who makes a cake for her son to surprise him, but before she gets home that night to give it to him, he eats it after school. Nobody's happy, right? Because the very thing that she was going to give him as a gift, he had taken on his own and ruined it. It's the same thing. God wants to give us things. He wants us to inherit the earth, but we're too busy taking it for ourselves to allow him to work in our lives. It's always more blessed what to what? Give than receive, and God knows that. So when we receive from God, he is giving. Obviously, he's happy because we're willing to be received. What if, what if you're like, oh, God, I don't need it. You don't want to receive from God, then you don't want to what? You don't want to be happy. You don't experience what God has for you and I. Going on, the fourth reality of Jesus' posture to happiness is focus your appetite. So he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. So we all have a desire. We all have a desire for something more in our lives. But what, where does your desire lead you? It's not a physical hunger. It's a spiritual hunger. It's an emotional hunger. It's even a mental hunger that you and I have. Where do we guide that to? Where do we look to? Normally, what that means is that we don't look to what? Righteousness. We look for things that are shortcuts. We are great at looking for shortcuts. That's why marketing works so well. It promises something to you that won't be hard. It'll be easy. It won't take as long as you want it to. It'll become quite fast, so you buy the product, right? Anybody ever bid on that bait before? We all have. Why? Because we, d- we don't want something that's going to take a long time. We don't want anything that's difficult. We want something easy. We want something quick. So our appetite goes to what? The f- easiest thing that we can access. And the easiest things that we can access are what? Substitutes. Substitutes that represent something that we want but never deliver on what they are. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be satisfied. But the opposite is true. If you hunger and thirst for things that are substitutes, you will never be satisfied. You keep going back to the same well. You keep going back to the same place, and you're not finding the happiness. Why? Because your hunger is not going to be satisfied by anything but what? God's righteousness, making things right in your life. His forgiveness, his transformation, his freedom in your life are the only things that are going to truly make you happy, but we look in other places. That's the conversation Jesus had in, in John 4 with the woman at the well, where he comes to her, and she's drawing water, and this is a physical reality she's living in, but he turns it to spiritual, and he says something pretty important to her in, in verses 13 and 14 in John 4. It says, Jesus said to her, He says, everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, listen, your hunger and your thirst, because he knew the woman he was talking to was a woman who's promiscuous. And in her life, probably the idol was men. She had to have a man in order to be complete. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be thirsty You're going to be thirsty if you keep going back to the well. But if you come to me, I will give you not only something that will quench your thirst, I will give you something that will well up inside of you as a fountain for other people around you. That's powerful. And so if you and I could understand that just for a moment, what what does that mean for our life? That Jesus actually will satisfy us if we take the, the hunger that we have and we redirect it on him. And then we want what he wants. What Jesus is saying in in a nutshell is we need to want what he wants. We need to want the will of God in our life and for other people. And then we will find satisfaction in our lives. And then the fifth reality 
and that is this. This is not easy, but this brings happiness, believe it or not. Forgive others. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What's mercy? Mercy means somebody does something against me, they owe me, but I don't make them pay it back. That's mercy. I don't give them what they really do deserve. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be happy, then you have to treat people with mercy. Why? Because when you blow it, you'll receive mercy in return. That's significant. Because we live in a culture that is the opposite. If you blow it, you pay for it. Nobody brings mercy to the table, and it just keeps going around. It's vicious when you watch our culture. When somebody fails, normally, the last thing that anyone gets is mercy. When a celebrity fails, when a political candidate fails, when somebody in culture fails, what happens? Is they're on the rise, and they blow it, and then you never hear from them again, right? Because nobody extends mercy. It's just the culture that we live in. But Jesus is saying the reason that no one gets mercy and no one receives it is because no one's giving it out. No one's offering it. Can you imagine, especially in the church, if we lived in the context of mercy? But this is the difficulty. Mercy costs you something. Mercy's never free. Murphy, mercy comes at a cost. That means if somebody does something against me, I have to absorb that offense. I have to be willing to pay for their failure. That's hard. And not require of them payment to make things right in our lives. Mercy is a way of living. But think about this. And this is the challenge that I think we face in the church. You cannot be offended and be happy. You can't be in an offensive position towards somebody else because of what they have done to you and be happy in your life. See, we think that we can be offended at people and then somehow our relationship with individuals and our relationship with God are mutually exclusive relationships. They don't affect each other. That is a lie that the enemy wants us to buy. And that's what's crazy, that we think we can be offended and live in offense and live divided with people and still be fine with God. But that's not mercy. In fact, listen to Jesus' very strong words in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. He says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's Jesus. Listen to his words. Why are you miserable? Because you're living in offense. Now, I don't know how egregious the failure is that someone has perpetrated on your life. It could be very deep and very profound, but I know one thing's for sure. If you don't choose to forgive that person, they win twice over. Because they've destroyed your life once by the, f the, the fracture they created, and now they destroy it again. Why? Because you live in bitterness because of what they've done to you. And the only way you find happiness is when you release that person and you forgive them. It doesn't mean that there is the, nether, the next step of forgiveness is called reconciliation, which God desires. But that's not always possible, it seems like, for humanity. But you can forgive somebody. It doesn't mean that they have to be your best friend, but you can let go of their offense. But how many times do you and I live in offense? In fact, how do you know if you live in offense? If you walk in the room and somebody walks in the room and you feel uncomfortable because of something in your past. Or when their name comes up in conversation and you feel awkward because you know there's something still unresolved between the two of you. You live in offense. So what's the answer to happiness? You have to go and extend mercy to them. You're like, well, no, I'm going to wait for them to extend mercy to me first. No, 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 no. No, in fact, the, Jesus also says, you know, if you come to the altar to offer and then you realize that somebody else has an issue, he's saying you're the initiator. You don't get to wait and say, okay, well, they started it, so they're going to have to. No, 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 no. You are the initiator if you're a follower of Jesus. You're the one that's supposed to extend mercy to somebody else. And then the sixth reality. 
Jesus' posture to happiness is that you and I have to live transparent. He says, happy or blessed are the pure in heart. For why? Why? They will see God. You and I are happy when what? Does it mean that, because here's the reality, is our hearts always pure? No. Now, when we receive Christ's righteousness, are we pure before God? Yes, we are. But purity isn't just the absence of impurity. Purity is a transparency that allows us to be honest with what's inside of us. There's something true in us that doesn't hide or block what others need to see or what God needs to see. Obviously, God sees everything. But purity in heart means that if I am open and transparent and honest before God, then I'll get to see him. Why? Because there's nothing I'm hiding. There's no skeletons in my closet. There's no unconfessed sin. There's not something I'm trying to hold back from him or hide from him. I am completely, and when you and I are honest and transparent, then there's a purity that comes. Why? Because God can now reach into our lives and he can deal with the things that keep us from truly following him. But you and I have to be honest and transparent. We don't like to do that. Now, some of us, we live in a world of illusion where we're trying to keep people guessing, keep God guessing. Others of us, we do really well, but there's like 5% of our life that we're still keeping in the closet. That we're still hiding because we know that there's stuff there that doesn't belong. And so when we kind of come to God, it's kind of like you're, you know, a teenager that's supposed to keep their room clean. And when you, you know, you come out of your room, you shut the door behind you. And in your mind, mom and dad think your room's clean, right? As though you think you leave the house and they don't go and peek, right? Not that I'm speaking from experience at all, right? But somehow we think if I just close the door of my life behind me, then God and no one else gets in to access it. Remember Jesus, he walked through walls after he was resurrected, so a doorway is not going to be an issue for him. He can see everything. But what are you and I hiding? What's behind the door? Why can't you leave the door open? Why do you have to guard yourself around other people? Why? Because there's something impure in you that you're trying to hide from other people and God. And God is saying, if you'll finally come clean, you'll experience a pure heart. And when you experience a pure heart, you're actually going to see me for the first time in your life. You're going to see me now, and you're going to see me later. You're going to see me fully. Why? Because there's a purity that comes to your life from being transparent. Jesus doesn't say, get your act together and then come and see me. He says, surrender your life to me, and then I will begin my work in you so that you will be what? Pure in heart, that you will be righteous. Isn't that good news? That you don't have to work up something, a certain level, and like, okay, now I get to engage Jesus. No, he says, come as you are, and then I will not leave you as you are. I will transform your soul. That's what brings happiness. But so many of us, man, I've, I've, I can keep this quiet. I can be happy over here. No. I know what that's like. That 5% will poison the 95%. And the happiness you experience will always be limited by what you're hiding in the closet. If you bring that out in the open, then something can happen. Then freedom can happen. Then forgiveness can happen in your life. There's a couple more really important ones here. That is, the, the seventh one is to make peace. Jesus says, happy or blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. Why? Because God is the ultimate peacemaker. Now, let me talk about this. When we think of peace, our default is peace is the absence of war. Uh, yeah, partly. But peace, especially to a Jew, is much bigger than the absence of war. Because the word peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, which most of us have heard. And the concept of shalom is not just peace like, hey, we're good, I'm good. We're all. No, peace is the place or the context where everything is as it's supposed to be. And that's why Jesus came as what? The Prince of Peace. 
So he was going to what? He came. Did he make peace? Yeah, actually, he made peace, and he also caused division among people, who chose, some who chose to follow him and some who rejected him. But Jesus brought peace. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, he took what was wrong in us and tried to make it right if we will believe in him. So he took what was wrong and he made it right. That's a peacemaker. And you and I get to be called sons and daughters of God because what? That is the nature of our Father. That's the nature of God is to bring shalom to people who are not in peace. When you and I look around our lives, not everything is as it's supposed to be. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 6 as well, and, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. We said what? We're supposed to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Shalom is in heaven. And is bring what? Shalom of heaven to earth so that where we live, what we experience is what God wants. It's making all things right. Now here's the reality. If you want to be happy, not only do you want to experience that yourself, but you want to be the kind of person that brings that to bear in other people's lives. What makes you happy is when you have to actually invest yourself in somebody else to bring shalom in their life, to bring peace in their life. And this is what you've heard me talk time and time again about this. If you and I are peacemakers, that means that God has placed you in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, because you're the peacemaker that's supposed to do what he wants you to do. You don't live where you live by accident. You didn't pick your house or your apartment. You're like, yeah, I did. I'm paying the mortgage, right? No, God picked it for you. Why? Because God loves people around you. And I will continue to harp on this one because the, the power of the church is not on Sunday morning. The power of the church is in the week. It's where we live every day. And if you and I actually realize that, that I am living where I'm living because I'm supposed to be the peacemaker, which means I'm supposed to help my neighborhood be the way it's supposed to be according to what God wants for it. So how do you do that? You look around your neighborhood and you look for what's wrong in the, in the lives of your neighbors. You look for where they need help. And then you realize God's placed me here not for wait, to wait for somewhere else to come along and fix the problem, but for me to step into this and find out what I can do to make things right in their lives. Open your eyes. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know your neighbors enough to know what they need even if they don't even realize they need it? Kim and I have taken this so seriously that we continue. Every time we meet neighbors, it takes a while. You just start hearing stories. You start figuring out. We've got neighbors across the street from us that have young kids, and they need help, so we've watched their kids. We have an older, older couple around the corner from us, and sometimes they need help. They're a really prou proud couple, and they don't want help, but I, we keep pushing it. One of the issues that they have is, is that, that in front of their house, there's a no parking zone, but there is no red paint, so people park there all the time, and when they drive in, they're like both 85, they can't get their car in the garage. And they've come over to our house so many times and said, we can't park, did someone from your who's visiting you park there? So Kim has been petitioning the HOA for six months now, and we're about ready to go buy a red can of paint and just paint it ourselves, right? But because, <laughs> thanks Joe, we'll talk about it after the service. But it's, it's, it's for, for what's a big deal for them? They can't get their car in the garage. That's not right for an 85-year-old person who has trouble getting around. So we're going to get that paint painted red. Why? That painted red. Why? Because that is making it right for them. In fact, one of the best compliments I've ever received from that couple is that she didn't even know it meant anything. But she said this to me after we'd gotten to know them. She said, I, we are so glad that you guys moved into the house next door to us. I'm like, that's exactly what I need to hear because that means God's placed me here. In fact, side note, i got to tell you this. I told elder, the elders this on Thursday night at our meeting, but it's kind of funny. But they, Kim was having some meetings and having some therapists that were coming for our baby that we're currently fostering. So there's a lot of activity going on around our house. And, and in the middle of that, she looked out 
And here's our 85-year-old neighbors laying on our front grass on our lawn. Both of them just laying down. <laughs> and she's like, and like just kind of laying there, like not really, not moving, just like, like they're laying out getting a suntan, you know. I don't know. So she, and then there's a guy giving us a bid on some work, and they, everyone goes running out to the front yard. They're like, are you okay? Are you okay? And they just looked up with smiles on their face. And they're like, yeah, we both just kind of fell down. And they said, you know what? We figured if we laid here long enough, someone's going to see us, and they're going to come along and help us and get us up. <laughs> they fell on the right front yard, obviously, because they knew someone would help them, and then they helped them up. And I just, Kim told me that. I thought, oh, that's hilarious. So if somebody falls down on your, on your front yard, guess what? God wants you to help pick them up. But if you and I look at our neighborhoods, I'll tell you, I love where I live. And it's not because the house I live in. It's because the neighbors that I have. It's because God's placed me there so that I can see what needs to change. Do I want them to find Jesus? Absolutely, but their journey to finding Jesus means that I try to help them find peace in their lives. So whatever they need, I'm there for. So if you and I look, so you may ask, what do I have that they don't have? Start thinking about it. Maybe you have a lawnmower that your neighbor doesn't have. Maybe you have time that they don't have at a certain time. Figure out what you have that you can offer. This is nothing new, but then you become the shalom in your neighborhood. And then the final reality, and this one is, is difficult because this is completely counterculture. So Jesus' last point of a posture to happiness is that you and I have to be willing to suffer for Jesus. Can you imagine? So he, he just says this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So happy are you when you're persecuted. Is that crazy? It's like, yeah, when you're poor, you're the happiest. No, 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 Jesus, you got it backwards. No, 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 no. He goes, you guys got it backwards. Because what do we think? The opposite. You are happy when what? When you're fully satisfied, when you're comfortable, when life's convenient, when things are easy, that's when you're, ha- you're at your happiest. No, you're not. And I've said this before. If you want to see happy people, go travel to areas of the world where the church is growing, but poverty and oppression and persecution are present. You will see the happiest people on the face of the earth. And it makes no sense to you as an American. Because it doesn't equate. Because what do we think? We think what? Money plus possessions plus freedom means happiness. No. We are one of the most depressed countries in the world, yet we have the most than any other country in the world. Why? Because we think what the delivery system of pleasure in our culture delivers happiness, and it doesn't. Some of the happiest people that I've ever met in my life don't live in the United States. How is that possible? In fact, listen to what the disciples said of themselves in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It says this. It says, after they've been persecuted, it says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They just got released from jail, being falsely accused, and then the, what are they doing? They're happy. Why? Because they realized there was something about their life that was so genuine in knowing Jesus that it caused them to be persecuted, which meant that they were headed in the right direction. They were going against the flow. They were heading upstream. And if you and I were to understand that about our life, that we, we move away from those areas, think, oh, that's going to be too difficult. And it's not necessarily, it's not taking a stand for Christianity, because let's get that clear. It's following Jesus even against the flow. Because we sometimes bring persecution on ourselves, and if that's not persecution, persecution comes not from taking a religious stand politically in our country. Persecution comes when you're not willing to compromise on the fact that Jesus is your all in all. And people see that, and they don't like that, and they push against you. They're not pushing against Christianity. They're pushing against Jesus in you. That's true persecution. And if you and I understand that's where happiness lies, that means that, again, it's the opposite of what we think. 
Some of the happiest people I know live in China and live under this great oppression of a government that has outlawed the ability to even share your faith publicly or to gather in a place that's not a registered church and worship Jesus. You can't do that in China. Yet why is it that the church in China is growing faster than the church in America? And now there are more Christians in communist China than there are in the United States. How is that possible? Because persecution does something to us. One of the things it does is it makes you value your faith in Jesus. Because it costs you something. It's valuable. Some of the best times of worship I've had have been in Uganda and in China. Places where you think, oh, no, no, these people can't be happy. They miss the memo. They don't have cars. Some of them don't have shoes. Some of them have one pair of clothes. Some of them actually share clothes with their family. They can't possibly be happy, but yet they are. Why? Because they realize that their faith is in Jesus and his provision and following him and all the other things that we think are going to make us happy don't make us happy. I want you to think about that in your life. It's not that you and I have to go out and find persecution. But to ask this question, maybe the reason I'm not happy is because there's nothing in my life that is worth persecuting for. Maybe the way I follow Jesus doesn't demonstrate anything of value to other people around me. Therefore, I'm just like everybody else in the culture. There's nothing different about me. It's not, again, it's not to go make a religious stance. This is different. This is that there's something so genuine about who Jesus is in your life. Eventually, somebody's going to push back on it. Because what they're pushing back on is not you. They're pushing back on Jesus because they don't really have an issue with you. They have an issue with him. And if we're not living out in such a way that we're getting pushed back, then there's something that we're not doing or understanding or living in. Why? Because there's some kind of joy that happens. And I've heard it time and time again when someone goes through severe persecution, they come out of it, and there's something about them that has great joy because they never felt closer to Jesus in their life than when they were persecuted. And there's a level of intimacy that you experience with Jesus. I know that I haven't experienced to the level so many have that when you are persecuted, you feel like you see him face to face because he's there with you. He's present with you. So when you look at these things, I want you to, to think about maybe the, this is tr- could be true for each of us. When you look at this list, now I said we don't have time to dive deep in, but when you look at this list, could it be that maybe we got this happiness thing all wrong? And in fact, the danger of what we'll experience today is we will hear this and then we'll walk away right back into a culture and surrounding a context that says the opposite and we'll just go right back down the same road and then in a week you'll be frustrated about the fact that your plumbing doesn't work in your apartment or your house or your car is broken down and you're miserable and you're not happy and you can't figure out why. Because you've chosen pleasure as your delivery system and it's getting you nowhere. What if we actually live differently? And that's why... One of the reasons that we have Discipleship Essentials classes is to get to Jesus' words. Jesus defines happiness for all of us. This isn't just for a few people a couple thousand years ago. This is what he said is true for humanity, true for followers of me. If you want to be happy, if you truly want to experience joy in your life, then it comes opposite. And what I strongly encourage you to do is go home and read these verses over and over and over and over until the Holy Spirit ingrains them into your soul and you wake up one morning and you start living opposite by instinct because it's embedded in who you are. Because if you keep reading on in this thing called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you're gonna, Jesus says things that just fly in the face of conventional wisdom. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, slap them back. No, that's what culture says. What does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. 
If somebody steals from you, take revenge and get it back. No, 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 no. Offer them your cloak too. If somebody asks to borrow, you know what he actually says? You don't have the right to say no. Whoa, it's my stuff. I paid for it. Come on. Why does Jesus say all of that? Because we've come up with a system that is the opposite of Jesus. And what has it produced? Happiness? No. It's produced depression and anger and rivalry and all kinds of things that are destructive to our lives. But Jesus says, no, 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 there's another way. And the ultimate thing is this. It's not just take these principles and live them out. Jesus is giving us the core of what this is all about. And that is, if you and I truly follow Jesus and he becomes the ultimate one in our lives, then these things will follow. Because you can, you, as a human being, you can go out and try to live all of these, but if you don't have Jesus at the core of who you are, it'll just be works. And you'll only sustain it for such a, a little amount of time before you'll just cave under the pressure of the law, which means I can't live up to this. But if Jesus is at the center of your life and you are willing to embrace these realities and living this way, you and I will find ourselves very happy because we're not grasping for things. We're not hanging on for things. We're letting God what give us grace, which is a gift, and give us mercy and allow us to live a life of happiness. I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes as we conclude. I mentioned earlier, and I think this is something that's really important. I think there are things that Jesus, and this is not to somehow devalue any other parts of Scripture, but the words that Jesus has given us throughout the Gospels, especially when you find it, what he talks about in the Gospel of Matthew, he clearly defines for us what our lives are supposed to be. And sometimes when we read it, either we don't understand it or we don't like it. We're confused by it. And so we kind of walk away and we kind of come up with a concept of what we think it means and then that doesn't really translate to actually being a part of our lives. So this is what I want to strongly encourage you to do. Instead of trying to go through volumes and volumes of Scripture, which there are seasons in life, but that is extremely important, there are other times when you need to simply just digest small portions. And in that process of digesting small portions, allow the Holy Spirit to show you what that means for your life. Because sometimes you can read a scripture over and over and over again, and you can even regurgitate the scripture, but you don't know what it means for your life because it's gotten into your head, and you know it by rote, but you don't know it by heart. Because if you know it by heart, then it begins to influence the way you act. And so I'm going to encourage you. I, I know I've mentioned this to a number of people, but I've, over the last six months, I have been in Matthew 5. Six months. And I keep going back and I keep rereading and I keep rereading and I keep waiting. And until the Holy Spirit gives me something, I keep rereading every day. And I'll go back three, four, five verses until, boom, the Holy Spirit shows me. As I sometimes I'll study and I'll go and I'll look at steady resources to do that, which there's plenty of stuff on the internet to do, but I'll just wait and I'll think, okay, I get it. That's what you're saying. That's what you mean. And now I'm going to write down what that means for my life. And now each day I strive to live that way and then I realize the more that becomes a part of my life the more joy I experience the more happiness I have and the less I look to people and things and experiences to answer to what only Jesus can answer to in my soul so I want to encourage you maybe it's just this week maybe it's a longer journey would you read through Matthew 5 especially this first part and just maybe each day, just digest one of these Beatitudes. Change the, the word ha to happy instead of blessed. 
and then let God just to show you in your life, this is what this looks like. This is what it looks like for you to be poor in spirit. This is what it looks like for you to mourn over the brokenness in your life. This is what it looks like for you to hunger and thirst or to be meek or to show mercy or to be a peacemaker or even to be persecuted that Jesus would show you. Then you're like, ah, that's how I live. And then the result would be frustration, angst, anxiety, depression would begin to be lifted from your life because no longer are you serving an idol that can't deliver on that, but you are serving Jesus who has everything that you will ever need to make you happy, content, and satisfied no matter what the circumstances of your life. In fact, as I close, I'm gonna encourage you, if you have never come to a place where you have fully surrendered your life to say, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm not gonna follow my way anymore. I'm not gonna follow the culture's way, but I know that there's a better way of life. There's a better way to experience freedom from my brokenness and sin. There's a better way to understand how the whole world works. And you know that today you're understanding that comes through Jesus. And I'm gonna encourage you, when we pray in a moment, I'm gonna pray to close, that you just begin to tell God, because he hears you, that your desire is to surrender your life to Jesus. And in that, you are offering all your brokenness, all your sin over to him so that he can bring forgiveness to you and wholeness in all those areas of your life so that you can be right with him, so that things can be right in your life. Lord Jesus, we come to a conclusion today, and as we do, we know, Lord, that, that we have to now live out what you've given us and what you've blessed us with. And so, Lord, as we come to these moments, I pray, Lord, that you would now give us the courage by the power of your Holy Spirit that goes with us to actually live out what you've lined out for us in these verses. So, Lord, I pray, produce happiness. And I pray for many of us that we will wake up one morning and we won't have to try to be happy. We will be happy because you are at the center of our lives helping us to live out the life that you purpose us to live. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.